The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Dr. Andres Ritz. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. In today's episode, we're revisiting COVID-19, this time to go over the relationship between vaccines against coronavirus and fertility. In our very first episode, we discussed fertility treatment in the era of COVID-19 with Dr. Thomas Molinaro. That episode was recorded in September of last year, almost four months ago to the day. At that time, there were approximately 35 million cases worldwide, and about 1 million people had died as a result of COVID-19. Since then, those numbers have continued to rise, and on January 25th, we reached the grim milestone of 100 million COVID cases and just over 2 million dead. The United States currently accounts for about 25% of the world's numbers in that regard, both in total reported cases and number of deaths from COVID-19, with over 26 million people having been diagnosed with the disease and over 400,000 deaths. Clearly, while we remain immersed in this pandemic and the resulting aftermath, a lot has changed in the past four months, but not all for the worse. Almost a year now from the beginning of this pandemic, Vaccines of unprecedented efficacy have been approved for emergency use and a global vaccination effort on a scale never seen before is currently underway. According to the WHO, as of today, there are actually 63 vaccine candidates in clinical development and another 174 in preclinical development. On one hand, conventional vaccines such as inactivated or weakened virus vaccines protein-based vaccines or viral vector vaccines are being developed. These consist of either forms of the virus that have been inactivated or genetically engineered to not cause disease, or harmless fragments of proteins that can elicit an immune response. Some of these vaccines have now become pretty much common household names, such as the AstraZeneca vaccine, Janssen, Novavax, the Russian Sputnik vaccine, or the Chinese CanSino. Two particular vaccines, on the other hand, the ones developed by Pfizer and Moderna, both already approved for emergency use in the United States as well as in Europe, use a cutting-edge approach to generate immunity. Instead of using a viral vector, a part of the virus or a weakened virus, mRNA vaccines directly provide the mRNA that our cells will translate into the protein that will then induce an immune response. As it frequently happens, unfortunately, vaccines are often met with skepticism over their efficacy and safety. Vaccines against COVID-19, partially as a result of their haste and development, have been no exception to this, and several claims have actually been made that not only the vaccines may not be as effective as we originally thought, but also that they could be dangerous. Today, we have invited Dr. Jeffrey Thorne to discuss what is known about the relationship between COVID-19 vaccines and fertility. Dr. Thorne is a reproductive endocrinologist at RMA Philadelphia. 
He went to medical school at the University of Connecticut and continued there for both his residency and his REI fellowship. In addition, Dr. Thorne also has a master's in developmental and stem cell biology, as well as a master's in clinical and translational research. He has also conducted research at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda. Dr. Thorne, it's an honor to have you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, Andres, for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here, and you guys do a fantastic job with this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Much appreciated. Before we start, I I saw when I was preparing for this that you're a Husky. Um, I did my residency in Connecticut, too, not at UConn, at Bridgeport. What what brought you from Connecticut to, to RMA and to, and to Philly? Yeah, that, that's an excellent question. I, I, I spent a lot of time in Connecticut and completed my training there. It was a wonderful experience. Uh, uh, University of Connecticut's uh, a, a terrific university and, um, and offered so much. Um, but after I completed my training, uh, both me and my wife are physicians and it was sort of time um, to, to set out and, and find a job for both of us. And, you know, we took the typical path uh, of networking and seeing what was out there and we just feel very fortunate uh, where we ended up in Philadelphia and it was such a, a, a terrific practice. That's awesome. Um, in, in regards to COVID, how are things uh, up in Philly? Things are probably similar to how it is in the rest of the world. We wish it was getting better. Unfortunately, COVID still remains an issue that, that's ongoing. Um, I think the, the good news is the vaccination effort has taken off. It, absolutely trying to get as many people vaccinated as possible. So uh, I think we're optimistic that that hopefully we're, we're turning the corner soon. Now, I, I wanted to talk to you about COVID vaccines. Let's start first with what we're trying to, to prevent with them, right? What are the effects of COVID-19, particularly on pregnant women? Right. That's, that's an excellent question and, and something I feel with every day. So in speaking about COVID-19, as you said in your introduction, speaking about the coronavirus disease caused by SARS-CoV-2, and I think the concern is, is, as you said, unfortunately, we're still dealing with a global pandemic. I think it's been roughly a year now since the first case was uh, diagnosed in, in the United States in mid-January, and it's absolutely upended all, all of our lives. And the numbers are, are staggering, as you said, over 400,000 deaths in, in this country. And the concern with, with COVID and the virus is its high infectivity rate and more concerning its mortality rate of, of over 1%. Now, I think it's well established that there's certain risk factors for, for COVID disease, including older age, obesity, diabetes, uh, being immunocompromised, to name a few. But I think some people would be surprised to learn that pregnancy is also considered a a risk factor for severe infection as well, according to the CDC. And there's data to suggest that symptomatic pregnant patients with COVID-19 are at increased risk of more severe disease compared to some of their non-pregnant cohorts. And pregnant patients with comorbidities, such as some of those that I mentioned, obesity and diabetes, are at higher risk of severe infection than, again, their non-pregnant uh, counterparts. So Absolutely, um, if you're pregnant and, and infected, there's significant risks. In addition, uh, it's known that pregnant women, symptomatic pregnant women with COVID are 
may be harder to treat than their non-pregnant counterparts. And a lot of this is because of the physiologic changes that occur in pregnancy, uh, namely uh, cardiac, respiratory, and changes with the immune system that may make it more difficult to treat, and not to mention having a, a gravid uterus um, that's taking up room and, and can compromise um, respiratory effort. So more specifically, in terms of, of outcomes of COVID, uh, risks of COVID on the pregnancy, there was actually a study that just came out uh, in the Journal of the American uh, Medical Association, uh, the JAMA Internal Medicine, which sort of outlined some of these risks in, in, in a nice study. And more specifically, what they said is that pregnant women with COVID have an increased risk of preeclampsia, demonstrated a 19% increased risk of preterm labor, preterm delivery, uh, increased risk of venous thromboembolism, increased risk of death. Um, and there was some data that even suggests they had increased risk of cesarean delivery. And then as mentioned with treatment, increased risk of ventilation or, or going to the ICU. Unfortunately for some of these more severe outcomes such as clot or death, uh, overall incidence still remains very low. Now, questions are also asked about effects on the baby. Um, and we do have some, some data uh, out there on, on effects on fetus and the baby. Um, there have been some reports of vertical transmission, so transmission from mom to baby, but these tend to be uh, rare and uncommon. And then the question always comes up about birth defects, uh, we, although we don't have a ton of data on this yet, and, and I'm sure we'll get that soon as babies are born to more women who have been affected, there doesn't appear to be an increased risk of birth defects. Thank you. That was, that was a good review. And I think that's it's important, a uh, particular detail you mentioned, not only is it more dangerous to have COVID from, for mom, for baby, but it's definitely also, also much harder to treat a pregnant person for, for COVID, which is very important. What are some of the things patients more, more frequently ask you about COVID vaccines? Yeah, absolutely. So again, it's daily conversations that I had, and you did a nice review of the vaccines that are available. Um, I think the, the reassuring news is that we do have over 60 uh, vaccine candidates that are on trials. And as you mentioned, I think over 100 million doses of the vaccine have been administered. So right now, the vaccine that is being largely circulated in the United States, at least of these mRNA vaccines, and that would be the Pfizer, uh, the, the one produced with Pfizer in combination with BioNTech and Moderna. Um, good news for these is that, as you said, they have very high efficacy of 94, 95%, which is sort of unprecedented in terms of, of the vaccine. Uh, question would be, though, that these are novel vaccines, being that they're, they're mRNA vaccines. And unfortunately, since they're novel vaccines, we don't have a lot of data on them with safety in pregnancy. Now, we do know that there are certain vaccines that are not recommended in pregnancy, and those would be the live vaccines, such as the MMR and varicella. And that's why we, we include rubella and varicella, checking for rubella and varicella immunity in our preconception blood work. But given that these are novel vaccines, at this point, we don't have data to really support their safety. But the current thinking right now, and based on some of the other previous data we have on, on vaccines available, is really the risks of acquiring COVID-19 outweigh the potential risks of this vaccine. And this has been supported by some of the larger governing bodies that are out there, including the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. 
And although they, they all have sort of different verbiage for this, they all advocate that, that pregnant women, especially those who are high risk of comorbidities, should be offered the vaccine. I think it's important to note that there are animal studies that have been done with, with the, um, the mRNA vaccines, and there's no negative data from that. And something that, that may also provide a benefit is that there was some, a recent article released in JAMA Pediatrics that found in mothers who are affected with COVID, they may have passed, they have passed antibodies on to their newborns. Um, and, and this may be a benefit of women who get vaccinated as well. Now, it's important that you mentioned that, you know, that there's no studies, obviously, that there's not, not that much data. Rumors regarding the, the potential for mRNA vaccines to cause infertility have become very prominent online, especially in the last, in the last few weeks. Where did this come from and what can you say about this? Is there any known effect of COVID vaccine on fertility or on the ability to carry a pregnancy? Yeah, that's a great question. And this has sort of garnered some buzz and circulating, especially online in the social media communities. So it seems that this was sort of potentially spread by a former Pfizer employee. And the thinking is that the vaccines target the coronavirus spike protein and basically uh, provide a vehicle to present it to your immune system so you can develop uh, immunity and, cr and create antibodies. Well, there is concern that this, the coronavirus spike protein has shared homology with a protein called syncytin-1. And syncytin-1 is involved, plays a role in, in early placental formation or, or more specifically formation of these syncytiotrophoblasts which are the uh, multinucleated cells of, of the very early placenta, which play a key role in embryo invasion, formation of the early placenta, and production of, and secretion of key proteins such as estrogen, progesterone, HCG. And this is a pro process sort of near and dear to my heart. When I was in fellowship, I actually did a, a research project on this. But currently, there's, there's no data to support that the Pfizer vaccine at all generates antibodies to the syncytin-1 protein. There's no, no data that the immune system is gonna launch an attack on the, on the placenta. The Pfizer vaccine does not contain placental proteins or any genetic material that would cause formation of placental antibodies. So the, the current thing is that there, again, COVID vaccines do not cause infertility in women. They do not cause infertility in men shouldn't be a concern. Um, of note, in the, the Pfizer trial, which was a larger trial of about 30 to 40,000 patients, they did have several patients who did conceive, and those numbers were actually equal between those who received the vaccine and those who didn't. Now, keep in mind, these numbers are overall very low and by no means statistically significant, um, but, but provide somewhat reassurance and need to be followed up on. Um, also of note, you know, the, the mRNA vaccines do not cross the placenta, so there's not need to be any concern there as well. That's, that's important to note, right, that pregnant women were not included voluntarily or on purpose in the studies, but there were definitely some people who became pregnant throughout the study. And so that kind of provides the first glimpse as to, as to the effects on pregnancy that we could see, although so far, like you said, that wasn't the endpoint of the study. It was that it was empowered to detect that, but but what we know so far is reassuring. Part of these unknowns stem from the fact that, like we were saying, there's there's essentially no safety data of the vaccines in 
in pregnant women because they were excluded from all the trials. Now, ACOG, ASRM, several other societies have advocated for a very long time for the inclusion of pregnant women and people trying to conceive in clinical trials, right? Why, why is this so important that we include pregnant women in clinical trials, although, of course, it may be dangerous to some degree? Yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, I think everyone would agree the overall goal right now is to stop the spread of, of this disease, but we need to make sure we do this as safely as possible. Uh, we currently believe the vaccine is safe, but ultimately we want data to sort of back this decision up. So we want our medical decisions to be data-driven. Um, so I think ultimately what we need to do is include women in these trials to generate that data uh, to provide the reassurance that these vaccines are safe. Now, really, there's been a, a call to action among a bunch of these bunch of these groups, ACOG, ASRM, SMFM, um, to say, hey, we need to step up our a- efforts uh, and, and generate this data, include women in these trials. The good news is, is that Pfizer has said that they are willing to include pregnant women in, in upcoming trials, and Moderna has said that they're they're interested or they're going to start a reg- registry so that we can track pregnant women and their outcomes. Right. Those are those are important developments, and hopefully we will get some some of that data sooner rather than later, so we can actually. Um, kind of act with with a little bit more evidence behind us. F- finally, the one last thing I wanted to ask you about is recommendations for for patients. Right on the one hand, uh, well, this week has actually last week has been a little crazy in terms of recommendations from societies. On the one hand, the last Monday, the World Health Organization said specifically, don't vaccinate pregnant women. Then two days later, ACOG, SMFM continued to recommend their original position, which was not withholding it. ASRM then went further and said, they updated their recommendation and said, in fact, they recommend vaccination for anybody contemplating pregnancy. And then finally, by the end of the week, the WHO went back on their decision and said, we indeed recommend not withholding it like ACOG and SMFM. How how important is it that these very influential societies, let alone government or bigger institutions um, give a coordinated message before they actually go out and, and, and send that message out to the public? Yeah, interesting. A lot, a lot sort of changed in the, in the past week. Um, and I, I think there was a big outcry against the WHO because they were really sending a conflicting and, and con- causing conflicting and confusing recommendations. And although they didn't outright come out and advocate for it, they, they did sort of soften their message that it, that it should be offered. Um, you know, I think you started off by saying it best that there is just skepticism out there um, about vaccination, especially when it's a new or novel vaccine. And I just think we need to have some overall reassurance for the public and, and have, have a consistent message that it is, there, it is safe. And we do think that this is best. And again, as we've discussed, COVID-19 is, is deadly and it can cause very severe disease, especially in pregnant women. Um, so we need to do our best to keep this group, group of patients safe. Yeah, absolutely. How, how, does, how do you specifically as a clinician, whenever there are these messages that are not quite in line with one another, how do you navigate 
yourself these conflicting messages and if you don't mind sharing if you could give a tip to somebody else talking to a patient who comes in and says hey i read this but i also read this on the other hand what what do i do now how do you kind of navigate that yeah that's a great question and something that the who uh, added in their statement was was that this their their decision to get vaccinated should be done in consultation with the healthcare provider and although the other uh, agencies said this doesn't necessarily have to be done with a healthcare provider. I'm more than happy to, to talk with you about the decision to get vaccinated. And then again, as I said, I have these conversations daily. And really, this is done with, with this shared decision-making model where I'll share the information I know about the vaccine and my patient will, will share their, their personal concerns with it. You know, and ultimately, it, it's a personal decision at this point. But I, but I you know, it, there's certain considerations I ask them to take into account and some things that need to be thought of is, so what's your level of exposure? So how likely are you to, you to contract this? Are you a frontline healthcare worker? Or are you somebody who may be at a lower risk or is working from home right now? How prevalent is the disease in your community? Um, certainly there are, are certain areas and regions of the world right now that are, are, are more hard struck than others. And do you have any personal risk factors that, that may reduce or that may put you at more risk for getting severe disease? And these are things that we talked about at the beginning, you know, uh, in being immunocompromised, obese, diabetes, cardiac, respiratory complications. And I think all these need to be taken into account when, when coming up with a decision to, on whether you should get vaccinated or not. And ultimately, at this point, it is, it is a personal decision, and I completely respect that. You know, the other thing to keep in mind right now is, is whether you get vaccinated or not. It's important to, to still engage in mitigation strategies, things like wearing uh, personal protective equipment, face masks, social distancing, hand washing, and, and quarantining when necessary. Because um, even though we are having this mass effort for vaccination, it's going to take a while before we really get to that herd immunity level. And, and right now, we just all need to do our best to to, to lower the, the prevalence of this disease. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's hard to navigate sometimes these conversations with, with patients to some degree, right? I had a friend in, when I was doing research in New Haven that always said, you know, we have a problem with the general public and that they speak English and we speak science. And that's the, they don't always go hand in hand, right? It's hard to say, well, there's no data about this, but it's safe, right? And it's kind of, where, where do you kind of draw the line? But hopefully this, this episode was able to kind of shed some light uh, on on what the current knowledge is, on where we currently stand in terms of vaccine safety uh, and how how that relates to to fertility. Dr. Thorne, this has been amazing. Thank you so so much for dedicating your time to us. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. This has been another episode of FertiliPod by EVRMA. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for more research and topic discussions and all things reproductive medicine. See you next week. Uh-huh.